Welcome to B2B Podcast Stories, brought to you by DHA Marketing. Our guest today is Dr. Jeremy Sharp, a licensed psychologist and host of the Testing Psychologist Podcast. Dr. J shares his journey from starting a private practice to expanding into podcasting and consulting. Today, expect to learn the importance of finding passion and purpose in your work and how Dr. J has leveraged his love for teaching to help other mental health professionals grow and scale their practices. Also, learn how he ventured into software development, creating a tool to help psychologists streamline their work, and the power of community, which drives both his content creation and business growth. Before we begin, please remember to subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. It really helps the show, and we're going to keep bringing you amazing guests and stories all about the different ways your podcast can help your business. And with that, here's Dr. Jeremy Sharp. So is it Dr. Jeremy? Sure, you can say Dr. Jeremy. Yeah, you can call me Jeremy. You can say Dr. J, Dr. Sharp. Jeremy's good at the Dr. J. Dr. J, that's cool. <laughs> like I said, I've got to take what I can get. I was gifted with first name with a J. You know, <laughs> it works well. You know what? I think yeah. I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with that. Dr. J. So, Dr. J, welcome to the B2B podcast series. I think that's actually going to make up for the introduction because that's a perfect way to introduce you. Please tell us about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? And what is your business? Yes, yes. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Dr. Jeremy Sharp. So, I'm a licensed psychologist in the U.S. I'm in Colorado. Let's see. I got my doctorate in counseling psychology back in... 2008. And I started a private practice pretty quickly after that, largely out of necessity, which we might talk about, maybe not, but I launched into private practice in 2009 and did that for a few years, got to the point where I had a little bit of a sort of been there, done that uh, mentality and got a little bored, which, which happens to us, I think as business owners sometimes. And I was looking for the next thing and luckily got hooked up with a, with a business coach who said, why don't you take your you know love of teaching and sort of pivot that into a little different modality and think about starting a podcast. And so in 2017, almost exactly seven years ago, I started the testing psychologist podcast and that became a separate branch of the business that is the consulting arm of my work. And so I help other practice owners uh, build and grow and scale mental health practices with an assessment focus. So those are my, my two main businesses. And then a couple years ago, I started a software business as well, because you know, who wants to be bored ever? So <laughs> that's how I spend my time these days. Awesome. So, uh, Dr. J three three main businesses the private practice that you started first uh, then the podcast that you see as a business in itself so that's going to be very interesting to deep dive into why and how exactly and recently the software business as well so super super cool and lots of uh, lots of things to unpack here maybe to to begin with and to uh, answer some questions that the newbies like me might have uh, when we when we look at the apple podcast page of your of your podcast by the way 405 episodes congratulations that's absolutely massive yeah. we see that you cover everything uh, people need to know to start and grow psychological assessment services in your private practice so is psychological assessment services something separate from psychology that is part of a private practice or how would you exactly explain all the things you do as somebody who has a private practice and how do you help people exactly? Yeah, yeah, great question. So a little bit of the landscape, just of mental health practitioners, it's a pretty big umbrella, right? So there are lots of different licensures under that umbrella. Licensed psychologist is a specific type of mental health practitioner, right? So a psychologist is a different licensure than a counselor, which is a different licensure than a social worker and so on and so forth. There are other types of mental health licenses, but yes, I'm a licensed psychologist and assessment is largely specific to licensed psychologists. So as a psychologist, you know, that's one of the things that we can do that most of the other licenses cannot do. And so it is a, a bit of a niche, uh, even in the, even in the world of licensed psychologists. So there are some psychologists out there who only do counseling, like traditional therapy. You probably have 
run into that, right? So right. a lot of psychologists will only do counseling and assessment or uh, neuropsychological evaluation is another another term for it is a specific sort of subfield even of psychology. So I have a very small niche for this podcast, but it's been really nice because there are, I don't have a whole lot of category competition, right? Because it is a small niche. So you can pretty much easily uh, dominate your category then. So because within the private practice world, you have this specific niche podcast that covers quote unquote only the psychological assessment services. Is my exactly. setting correct? No. Exactly. Very, very, very yes. cool. So to, to focus a bit on the on the business deal, the, the private practice in itself, just to understand a bit the, the reach that, that might have and make the link later on with the podcast. Private practice is about helping people, right? And you're like probably seeing a handful of clients every day. Well, patients, maybe should I say? Uh, sorry for my- Clients, uh, no, clients works, yeah. Okay, so a handful of clients every day, if you push through a little bit, maybe a, a dozen, um, but that, that's the kind of reach that one can expect to have maximum because it's, it's your time, right? So the time you spend with people, unless you hire more people in your private practice, I imagine it can work like this. So in the first place, you help people on a one-to-one -one basis. That's what the first business is about, right? So since you made the link with the podcast business, how does that work exactly? Why did you think? okay, I'm going to start a podcast about psychology. Was the intention to try and reach much more people and help them through that? Or since you are pretty much focusing on the private practitioners themselves to help them help more people, what was the idea when you started all this? Yeah, let's see. So to answer this question in any uh, coherent way would, would I think, uh, be an exaggeration of like how deliberate I was in starting the podcast, right? So <laughs> when you ask it, it's easy to look back and say, this is exactly what my intent was when I started this podcast. Honestly, I just knew that, like I said, I was, I was a little bored, you know, like my practice was doing well and I wanted something different. I knew that I liked to teach. So I taught, you know, graduate level classes, under undergraduate classes. I love teaching and I knew that folks had come to me to ask for advice and running their practices or starting their practices. And so, yeah, this business coach that I worked with, thankfully kind of put all of those together and said, Hey, like a podcast is probably a good way to marry all of these, all of these ideas. And so I worked with him and we, you know, we developed a, you know, an idea for what it should be. And I did know I wanted to turn it into some kind of paid consulting. And, you know, I, I think I was pretty certain that I wanted the podcast to be the V the primary vehicle for people to find me for consulting. And so that I think I can confidently say that that was in the intention or the business plan when we started. Mm. That's, that's very, very cool. And back then, so just to be clear, you can definitely give us the elevator pitch and the story as you like it to be told publicly, but then tell us, okay, when I started, that's exactly what I had in mind. Um, we often have this story uh, as well with Osab when we started our first podcast, which is Corporate Treasury 101, which is a niche in finance. The first intention was to do something cool together. And I was in, uh, I was in treasury. So we're like, okay, let's break down some treasury con uh, concepts. And we weren't expecting to get many listeners actually. Two years later, the story is a bit different because obviously now we have thousands of listeners every month and the story is a bit different because yeah, there is an intention and you're like deliberate about what you do and the episodes that you get out. But like, we're interested in understanding indeed the beginning of the story that that's what I had in mind, because there might be a lot of people listening to us right now that are like, oh yeah, actually that's exactly the state I'm in. Like my business is doing well, pondering whether I should do some things extra to either boost it or bring an additional flavor to it. And the podcast might be the exact answer. Like, hey, that can be lots of fun, support my business, increase my authority in the field, because I suspect and we're going to come to it. That's exactly what it did as well for you, because all of a sudden you end up speaking with, let's say a few dozen people every week. Uh, that know your work, that recommend you to other people that might be seeking help. But with the podcast, you reach hundreds, if not thousands of them every week. And all of a sudden it's like the reach is whole different and you can help much more people. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry. So what are, what are your thoughts on this? When you started first, it was well, out of Bordeaux. We, we get that, <laughs> but then also wanting to help without having this 
paid services as a coach directly, but more like, hey, here is the free content of things I've learned and I've understood from the industry. And this is how you can do a great job in helping people. And what has been the journey since? So started with this in mind. And now throughout the years, where are you and how do you feel that has helped you and helped your business? Yeah, I feel like I need to reflect on that a little bit because it's been it has been a journey, right? I mean, I sort of casually tossed out seven years, you know, it'll be seven years, I think literally this week, right? Is the, when I launched my first episode and, oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. But it's wild. It's wild, right? Like that's, it's past like a, you know, in the blink of an eye, but there's so, so much that has happened over that time and it's morphed and changed a lot. And so, gosh, I mean, I would say, the first at least two to three years were pretty slow, right? Like I would get a consulting client here or there, like two to three, a quarter maybe from the podcast, but it took a few years before it gained some traction and actually became sort of an engine to drive consultant clients. And so one thing that, that I did concurrently with starting the podcast that I think helped a lot just to build the reach was I also launched a Facebook group that, uh, you know, linked or corresponded to the, to the business, you know, it's called the testing psychologist community. And so folks would come into the Facebook group. I would post the podcast episodes there. There would be some discussion, you know, I would engage with them. And so it was, you know, it was, uh, sort of this back and forth, like mutually beneficial sort of arrangement. I would talk about the Facebook group on the podcast and they kind of built one another from an audience perspective, but it was slow. I mean, that's, I know we're not getting to lessons or advice yet, but that's one thing right off the top of my head is just, I mean, it took a long time. It took a long time and I really loved what I was doing. And I think that that helped during that time, because otherwise, you know, if you're, if you're just getting into podcasting to make money, unless you're, you somehow have a, a, a huge audience and sponsors lined up and, you know, affiliate stuff going on, it's, it takes a while. So, so the first two to three years were slow, but really fun. Cause I was just interviewing experts in the field and having a great time then. So I had a major uh, pivot point in during COVID, right? Like a lot of us probably did, did some reevaluating of our lives and what we were up to. And I previously had been alternating expert interviews with business episodes. I would just do, you know, one every other week and, you know, I was doing four episodes a month. And I found that I really enjoyed the business part and wanted to talk about that more because that was really what was driving my consulting clients, right? Was the business content. And I thought, well, why am I not doing more business content if I'm trying to get more consultant clients? Seems like I should have recognized that earlier, but you know, it took me a few years. So that was the pivot. I remember it was June of 2020 when I said, okay, I'm going to double up. I'm going to do, you know, double the number of business episodes and try to, you know, keep the number of clinical episodes the same or do more. And so I committed to doing at least six to eight episodes a month at that point. And that really, that really change things. So it's grew the audience, you know, the downloads really started to go up. The consulting clients started to go up, the sponsorships started to roll in and it became a much bigger part of my life. Right. So thinking back to the beginning, I was recording these episodes on the weekends and in the evenings and just trying to squeeze them in wherever. And now, you know, podcasting and consulting is two full days a week for me, you know, it's Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, you know, of my week at this point. So yeah, it's changed a lot. It's changed a lot. So that's really interesting. I think what you've done there then, Dr. J, is you found the intersection between what you're interested in, what people are interested in. And I'm sure that a large part of what's made you successful in that is the fact that you're so interested in it. And because of that, just your content was better. Now we talk all the time about, yeah, you need to have uh, repurposed content. You need to do this. You need to invite better guests. At the end of the day, it's all about making good content. It's not about the tips and tricks about, um, you know, like SEO optimized articles or turning it into social media shorts and tagging your guests in the post and everything like this. Fundamentally, you've got to have a good base of content and you've clearly developed that. But what's, I guess, where you've um, 
found the the sweet spot is really where it's something that you find interesting and people find interesting quite clearly. And that's all the right people. It's your sponsors, it's your audience, it's you, it's your guests. And having that like Ikagi, you know, uh, intersection point is really quite beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I think you said it well. It's I always tell people like I have the best job in the world. It's the most fun thing in the world. Like I, you know, I get to randomly cold email experts in my field and ask them any question that I want to ask them and learn an incredible amount of information while I'm recording and sharing it with other people who also enjoy it. I mean, it's, you know, it's the best thing in the world. Yeah. And I would, I would like to add to, to that, um, Dr. J, the, the thing you mentioned directly made me think of the power of focusing on the niche because there is a tremendous amount of, uh, well, business coach, business advice, business, whatever podcast content out there, there is, uh, there is everything. The fact that you focus on businesses for, uh, people who have a private practice, that's so niche down that if I have a private practice myself and I'm like, yeah, who has a relevant experience enough to just talk to me and know exactly my needs, that's going to be the podcast I'm going to listen to. And I'm sure that there are not as many private practice business advice podcast as they are business advice podcasts, obviously. So it's very funny to see, and I'm going to start a podcast in that niche, talking about counseling, but also talking about business of counseling and then identifying and by iteration that, Hey, that's what works the most. So I'm going to do more of that. That's exactly the path you took. So really, really interesting there. So you basically have four businesses then if I understand well, or maybe two businesses that are really highly linked together because you have the private practice, then you have the coaching and consulting business, which comes more from the podcast. And you also have the sponsorship of the podcast and then the software business. Am I, am I correct with that? Yeah. Yeah. I guess that is a good way to think of it. I see. So, you know, the consulting and the podcasting are all under the testing psychologist name. And so I call, I mean, it's one business from a legal and financial standpoint, but those are, yeah. yeah, they're two different income streams. Sponsorship of the podcast is totally separate from consulting income, but it's all housed under the same business. And have you had some, um, have you had some people discovering you, I mean, coming to you for your private practice because they heard about you from the podcast or from any other channel, because as we often say, with some podcast is not just podcasting. It's like how much of that content are you repurposing? And maybe you post one or two social medias publication for each episode. Maybe you have a YouTube page as well. Maybe you have an article uh, posted for each episode on your blog whatsoever. Did you already have people reaching out to you, seeking your uh, help for the private practice aspect that discovered you through the podcast? That's a great question. I actually don't know. I'm sure there have been some number of folks over the years. I mean, probably less than 50. I don't know. But yeah, it's I don't really use a podcast to drive clients to my private practice directly. But where I have found it is folks who are in my audience, like my podcast audience are looking for referrals in my area. And so they will they have heard of me through the podcast and they'll just pass along like, Hey, I know this psychologist in Colorado and you might check him out. Or but, the other um, way around, are your clients really interested to listen to you in a podcast? All <laughs> the time? Do they ever bring that up in sessions? It's a great question. I've had a few people bring it up. Not many though. I don't want to oversell it. Yeah. Like a few have <laughs> checked it out and that's okay with me. That's okay with me. There's, I, I like to keep them a little bit, a little bit separate. But I'm sure there are more folks out there than I know of that are listening. It's a bit cool to have a podcast star as your psychologist now that I'm thinking about it. Like, you're not just getting help, you're getting help from a superstar in the world of private practice. And on top of that, named Dr. J. I mean, that makes pretty well. You know, I'm going to take issue <laughs> okay, with the word superstar. I, I, I don't know if I can <laughs> endorse that. But maybe there's something to it. Who knows? I mean, people, you know, people like name recognition and maybe it gives me some street cred. Who knows? So beyond the, beyond the joke, I think authority wise, that might have a, a very powerful, very powerful thing because we, well, we give a lot of attention and importance to how visible somebody, somebody is. It's not always directly correlated to how good that person is in their actual job. Um, but I'm sure you're pretty much covered here, uh, uh Jeremy. Of course. 
but I'm sure it, it adds a bit to the authority, for sure, right? If I'm checking you out, because obviously psychology is not something you're looking into just quickly and you're like, oh yeah, okay, I'm being, it's like, you're getting referral, you're getting advices, you're checking reviews. And if I look for somebody in Colorado and I end up finding somebody who has a podcast with 405 episodes talking about just that and business advices for this, I'm going to be like, that's probably somebody I can trust because you're building that trust through the vehicle of podcasting that definitely helps you get street cred. That's a way to put it indeed. Um, authority, maybe it's for the more marketing terms, but definitely, definitely helps. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, it's just uh, name recognition, right? So, you yeah. know, if people Google Jeremy Sharp psychologist and there's like 30 links that immediately pop up and it's like, you know, in these different podcasts I've been on or talks I've given or what, and the private practice, you know, I mean, I think, yeah, I think the truth is people probably see that and they think, okay, this, maybe this guy knows a little more, or is a little more well-known than another psychologist. Uh, there's probably some truth to that. And so tell us about, just to, to wrap up on the business part of things, tell us a bit about the, the software. I'm interested into this actually, and to know if there is any link with the podcast. So was that again, getting rid of the boredom to begin with, but then what's the other intention behind it? Yes. So the software is still in development. So I no. won't be, I can't say a whole lot about it. One, because it's just not a finished product. And two, because, uh, we want to protect our intellectual property, I suppose, but yeah, it absolutely came from the work that I'm doing. I mean, it's software that we're developing to help psychologists do the work that I do. And you know, there are some, you know, y'all probably heard there's a lot of room in healthcare to disrupt and make things more efficient and free up people's time and things like that. And that's really what our software is, is geared towards. So yeah, I'm, I will absolutely be leveraging my podcast audience to help promote the software because it's, yeah, it's aimed at psychologists who, who do assessment. So hopefully those will, there will be some more overlap and synergy in those businesses as well. Super cool. I think also like you've, you've, you're really going up the business scale of leverage overall, Dr. J. I don't know if that's like a deliberate thing that you're doing. You went from the whole one hour of input to one, to your earning potential, right? Where you can, as a private practice clinician, it's just how many people are you actually going to be taking? Uh, in a specific day and that's the maximum you can really make and one hour in is x number of dollars out from there you move to media and sponsorship where you record an episode once and then that's there all the time and then you're on a recurring revenue based off your sponsorships and your consulting clients is also a bit one-to-one -one. but then now you're going to software which is the ultimate leverage right you make it once and then it's just there and people pay a subscription and and you can reach uh, on every psychologist out there in theory that's the hope that's the home. And again, it's the benefit of hindsight, right? Like in the beginning, this was not deliberate. I will say the jump to software was very deliberate. I, you know, myself and my partners, we had the foresight to say, okay, I do have this, this somewhat captive audience and we could really, you know, use, use the audience to help market the software and, and solve a problem you know it's that's what people say with software right like yeah. start the business that solves your own problem so that's what we're trying uh, to do i guess the interesting thing there is um it took you seven years as well so you have a huge moat around your business uh, i was listening to i was in charge of organizing a podcast once where there's a line that one of the guests said which really stuck with me which was things that are difficult for your business are a great moat which is just that like you have the platform to be able to advertise this this plat this new software that you're building, but only because you did the work for the last seven years. You really grinded. You were consistent. You were uh, doing all the right things. You were thinking about how you can do better. Should I talk more about business? Should I talk more about clinicians? Like no one else is going to be able to replicate that what you've got there, and therefore as a business, it's 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 a huge mode. I think you're right. I think you're right. And it's, I don't know, it's taken me a long time to, to tap into this. This is sort of like the, the anti-business advice, I suppose, where I don't know, it's just taken me a long time and a lot of other people saying like, Hey, you have this audience and this expertise, and this is something that, that we could really utilize and you could 
you know, you could take advantage of for, for lack of a better term. And yeah, I'm guessing there are folks out there kind of like myself with a lot of imposter syndrome and it, it can be really tough to kind of step into that role and, and acknowledge or, uh, sort of embrace the, the audience and the expertise and whatever authority people want to give you. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up being, being, I'm being a psychologist, I guess makes sense that you bring up imposter syndrome, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, I see that as a real barrier for a lot of people getting started in podcasting to think, who am I? But I mean, most podcast formats, the most popular one is interviewing and um, who you are is just someone curious, which I think most people out there can really relate to being now after seven years of the podcast, you can be considered an expert, but that's also because you have 400 hours of conversations with people in the industry, with experts, or you're discussing the matter. I mean, you do that with anyone on any uh, topic, you will become an expert. So I guess the imposter syndrome almost takes care of itself eventually, where you can start out as just, hey, look, I'm just someone curious that's interviewing people about a topic that I'm interested in. I'm going to record it and put it online, but it's not in my opinions. It's me asking questions in a way that I would want to listen to, and therefore I'm sure someone else would develop well eventually. Um, but going forward, after all those conversations, you become an expert. I mean, what the best example is uh, is us in Corporate Treasury 101 in our podcast. I was an engineer that took up that podcast, um, and I just went there thinking, I know nothing about Corporate Treasury. Let's go there, and I'll ask you questions, right. and eventually we ask um, other people questions that are more specialized in other fields. And now people come up to me and ask me treasury answers and questions. And I'm like, oh yeah, I know what that is. I could, yeah, actually, yeah, I could give you an answer. Let me give you some advice. And <laughs> having never done a treasury role in my life, um, and yet somehow I knew answers to questions, which people very seasoned in the role knew. And it was just because sure. I had all those conversations. I mean, we're, we're 200 episodes in as well now. And it was yes. a lot of conversations about one topic. Yes. I mean, I, I could... I, one thing, I mean, our capacity for learning is incredible, right? I mean, that's just a testament to how uh, you don't necessarily need a degree to become an expert in something, right? Like you, there is truly such a thing as being self-taught and just absorbing information. And just to speak to the imposter syndrome thing, yes, like it definitely, it definitely has lessened over the years. And I still, you know, when you're interviewing experts, like these are folks who, you know, are well-published, they're well-regarded, they've been around for a long time. I still get nervous on these interviews and think like, oh my gosh, what if I sound like an idiot? Like, why did I say that? You know, I still have those moments. So just to normalize that for anyone who might be going through this process, like, yes, I mean, it gets better for sure. And it's more comfortable. But I think the thing I've become more comfortable with is just acknowledging it and saying like, hey, this is probably a dumb question, but what do you think about such and such? And just throw it out there. And that that seems to have worked well for me. Yeah. And to to add a bit to that, if you have imposter syndrome, you're listening to that right now. Podcasting can help because to add a little bit of flavor and behind the scenes uh, to what Sam just said, when we were going to record episodes for the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast at the very beginning, I didn't know anything about the topic neither. But what I was doing and what I was forced to do in preparation of that recording is actually learn everything we were going to talk about in that episode because you don't really have a choice. You're going to put something out there, even if at the beginning it's just your mom and uh, potentially some friends that are going to listen to the episode. Uh, eventually, more people will listen to it. And like our first episode is now the one that has the most downloads ever. And it's our very first episode. So you have, when you know, when you have the psychological pressure of having to put something out there in the world that anybody can listen to, even if nobody will, you will actually feel forced to prepare so well that you will actually become maybe not an expert in the whole industry, but at least quite good in that very topic that you're going to talk about in the episode. And that helps a lot. And we had that with a lot of hosts who are telling us, yeah, I don't know much about the expertise of the guests that I'm going to interview tomorrow. So I actually have to prepare what have they done? What's their main expertise? What's their topic? And actually by pre prepping and by interviewing that people, you become truly an expert. And as Sam said, after 400 episodes, you can, yeah, you can pretty much say that you became an expert, at least in the niche that you're talking about. Exactly. I'll, I can double click on that too. I just actually finished, um, Adam Grant's newest book is called hidden potential. And he talks about this very thing where 
he says that they've done, you know, there's research out there that says that quote unquote, like expert or tenured professors actually get the lowest ratings. And the, the one, the professors who get the higher ratings are the ones who are new because when they dug into it, those are the folks who are like studying in the moment. They're basically like learning the material or mastering the material right before the class they teach. And they're fresher, they're, you know, more on top of it. And it's just that like staying one step ahead of what you're teaching that, uh, you know, translates really well to, to a class. So I think there's some science behind this whole concept. It's funny you mentioned that. I remember I had that exact experience at university. We had a, I think it was a statistics lecturer once when I was studying university. And, uh, and he was an amazing lecturer, really like the first time in my life I actually understood statistics. And like we were, he went through the entire semester. I remember the like last session, like one of the revision classes that used to do revision classes just before the exams. He was like, yeah, guys, I, you know, I, I used to learn the topics just before I came in. And he was like, I was just one, one lecture ahead of you guys in like my knowledge on the topic. Cause his background was like economics or something like that. Yeah. He moved over to like, um, something to do with energy markets and, and whatnot. That's why he's in the School of Engineering. But he, was, he admits that incident, and he was one of the best lectures we, I had had in my entire university career on a topic that maybe he wasn't, he hadn't done his base degree in or he wasn't doing his research in directly, uh, but he was studying it, he was fresh with it and he was coming to it. I think, and, and like Guillaume said, I think podcasting uh, definitely forces you to that as well. It's also a lesson to all of the seasoned podcasters out there as well is never get complacent with that. Like that's what made you good to start with. Don't drop the ball and let that thing that made you good and got you here. Like some of those skills won't carry you to the next step, but a lot of them will. And you kind of got to carefully evaluate, okay, these are the skill sets and these are things I was doing in my first 200, 100, 10, 50 episodes that made it really, really good. Um, and therefore I need to be able to make sure that I reverse engineer what that was and really focus in on that. Do you have a, do you have a way of uh, staying sharp before your, I'm sorry, I had to play that word. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, before, before the episode, like, do you have like a ritual or something to do before recordings or to clear your mind or how do you research guests? Like what's your pre interview ritual? Yeah, I wish I could say I had a, a, a really fancy ritual or something that was super meaningful. But no, I just do I just do research on my guests. I of course like check out their bio, their publications, their, you know, topic of interest, like anything I can find on on them. I will also research the topic a little bit. So, you know, I try to try to pair like the person with the profession as much as I can. So, you know, I'll try to dig in and find anything I can about the person just to have a little bit of a, you know, more uh, personal component to it. But yeah, I'll research the topic a little bit as well. But that's also part of my brand, I suppose, is that I'm not trying to go in as the expert interviewer necessarily either. So I sort of purposefully stay a little bit naive on the topic if possible, so that I can ask questions that I feel like represent more of my audience. Like I feel like there are fewer experts in the audience than there are folks who are just like good psychologists who don't know everything, right? And so I try to ask the questions that most people would wonder if they weren't an expert in that topic. So yeah, I mean, I'll prep and I research and I like digging into folks past and what they've got going on, but I'm not overly prepared, I suppose. That's interesting as well, not being over prepared so that you can ask the right questions as well in a, in a way. But again, to do that, and that's kind of a bit more the crux of my question, you have to be on your feet, on your toes at the time, right? Do you have any way that you prime yourself? I mean, do you have any way that you make sure that you're uh, thinking clearly? Do you avoid coffee a certain amount of time before? Do you, well, anything <laughs> like that at all or not really? I wish I could say yes. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty routine person and I okay. think, and I'm just sort of, um, gosh, I don't know what the word is. It sounds, sounds dumb, but just kind of blessed, I guess, with like good executive functioning. So yeah. I don't know. I think I show up most days and I'm, you know, I'm not like Switched rushing up. around. I'm, I'm pretty like in the moment and I do whatever I'm there to do and pretty dialed in. So I know that may not be the case for everybody, but yeah. I do try to exercise as much as possible. You know, I always work out in the mornings. Maybe that helps, but that's every morning. Not just good podcast. to know, indeed. So tell us a little bit more about the podcast itself, uh, Dr. J. So your primary, the way you're, if I understood correctly, 
Um, the way you're trying to use the podcast is really as a, as a means to grow your consulting branch of your business and also as a means for the sponsorships uh, to have interesting conversations, of course, to enable that. Um, so how did you come up with like the editorial line of the podcast? Like who are the type of people you interview to reach that goal? Uh, how much has that evolved over time? Like what's your thought process around who you interview to reach those business goals of yours? Yeah. So it's been an interesting journey. You know, it's very much, it mirrors my um, clinical practice, I think, in the sense that, and I think this is true for a lot of mental health practitioners where we like to work with the clients that sort of mirror our lives, right? So, you know, gotten older, I've found my clinical focus shifting from, you know, younger kids to teenagers, you know, as my own kids have gotten older, or, you know, now I'm developing more of an interest in older adults because my parents are aging, right? And so I've seen that process kind of happen on the podcast too, where when I was in the earlier stages and my practice was much smaller, you know, I was focused a lot more on kind of like small business development and the basics of starting a practice and so forth. And as time has gone on, I find myself drawn and interviewing folks who are more leadership driven, CEO mindset, like big practice finances and forecasting, you know, that kind of stuff. So the thing I've actually had to stay very mindful of staying plugged in to those beginner concerns because that's still a big part of my consulting. You know, I work with a lot of folks who are launching their practices. And so I, that's the thing I've had to stay on top of is deliberately bringing on guests or talking about business topics that are a lot more salient for early practice kind of folks. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's just uh, kind of paralleled my own practice journey because that's what I'm interested in. And so I want to interview people that are going to help me too, you know, that's really interesting though so it kind of comes it's somewhat related to the overprepared point as well in a way so overprepared you don't want to be overprepared so that you don't you still are able to ask the questions that someone that's not so well versed in the topic would want to hear and so you don't just assume of course that means this and that's that's where that comes from uh, but also as you develop as a podcaster and again if you're doing an educational podcast or you're doing a podcast which is really there to help people understand how to do something or how to build something etc then you also run the risk of and um, just over time over a, a longer period of your podcast progressively your topics becoming more and more advanced and less and less catered towards uh, what you set out for the podcast to be uh, now you could argue there though that you know people can go back and find your older episodes and that's where they're going to learn the other stuff and everything and maybe if you've titled everything really well and indexed very well that might be the case but people are always going to see the top the top of the episodes when someone new comes on your show there's a subset of people that might go to episode one and um, i hope not because episode one audio quality is typically some of the worst oh <laughs> and your interviewing skills are typically just not there <laughs> so <laughs> you know <laughs> how bad was your episode one Oh, it was terrible. It was terrible. I can't, I went back and listened to it maybe six months ago and I don't know if I'll ever touch it again. It's, it was so bad. Which is also a lesson for everyone here. And here you are seven years later uh, with an amazing, huge podcast and your episode one, uh, not sucked. I won't say that, but uh, you're not incredibly proud of, but you started and you're consistent and you improved and, and you got there eventually, right? Right. Right. Yes. I am. Um, I really like how what you explain, uh, Dr. Chap, um, really sticks to the authenticity part of things, especially when it comes to podcasting. That's something we advocate for a lot. Like the podcast needs to be authentic and the host needs to be authentic to make something successful. And the fact that you apply, okay, I'm talking about this now because this is at the stage I'm in at life. Like, okay, I'm focusing more on like more mature people because that's where my parents are. Followed a bit the evolution of my kids. And so now I was interested into like, youth and then a bit more like um, teenage years and so on. So I really like how that reflects authenticity in how you should be doing a podcast and overall business, right? I'm actually also interested into just to pick up to one of the to one of the things that you said as a complete newbie again in uh, private practice, how big can the practice be? Like how many doctors slash clients can you have in real practice? I, I always see I have sorry, I have always seen psychology as having one person when you a private practice that you would just go to, I guess, like for doctors, uh, medical doctors, I mean, you, you get what I mean. You can like be several people in the same building and like offer different services. How big can a psychology private practice be exactly? 
Sure, sure. I, I mean, I suppose the sky's the limit, but there it's a natural sort of plateauing curve, right? So yeah. there, so our practice at this point is about 40 practitioners. I know a handful of people around the country who maybe have, you know, I would say that's bigger than probably 95, maybe even 98% of psychology practices. But I also have a friend and colleague who owns a I mean, I'm not even sure how many, maybe 250 clinician practice across Arkansas and Texas right now. So that's, that's the biggest practice I've heard of that is privately owned um, and not part of a medical group or hospital system or something like that. But yeah, I mean, to get above, gosh, 15, 20, 25 practitioners in a, in a soul or in a private practice is yeah. that's, that's a big practice for all intents so, and purposes. Do we, do I understand correctly that it would be in one geographical location, right? So you would have 40 people in the same place or are there splits between different, uh, different locations? I think it's rare to have 40 in one single place. Okay. Most people at that stage of growth are going to have multiple locations. Um, we okay. have two, there are, yeah. I mean, most people at that level at least have two, three, maybe even four locations. Mm. And like I said, this practice in Arkansas and Texas, I think they have 20, 25 locations and their clinicians are spread across a couple states. So that's super impressive. So sorry, completely serving my own curiosity here. But so to, to get back to the to the podcast part of things, what were the especially after and reflecting on four hundred and five episodes, what were the challenges that you encountered? Uh, so you saw those opportunities, right? Saying, okay, I see this is working more than this other thing, so I'm gonna double down on this and like retreat a bit on this other thing. If we look at the other end of the spectrum, like what were the challenges that you encountered that maybe you didn't even think of in the beginning and how did you walk around them to make the podcast success that it is today? Yeah. Yeah. I think of a couple things right off the top of my head. One was just, I mean, just sticking to it and really that was like finding the time to do it because when I started, I had a full-time job, you know, I was a, I was a clinician and I was running our practice, which maybe had three to five clinicians at that point. And so it's just fitting it in. And that made a huge difference when I finally started to carve out time and dedicate time each week to, to do podcasting. My other problem that continues to be a problem, to be honest, it's less of a problem, but still a problem is trying to do everything myself. I don't know if y'all ran into this or no folks who ran into this, but you know, it's that entrepreneurial mindset. Like you can do, I can do anything if I just learn it and whatever. And it took me a long time to even like bring on an editor, like, or an assistant, you know, like someone who could do the post-production and the publishing and the, you know, all that stuff. And of course it was a game changer and totally worth it, but I stuck with doing everything myself for a long time and would definitely do that differently. If what I could made you, what made you jump? Like what made you think, okay, now, now is enough. I need to at least try having somebody editing the raw files for me. Like what made, help you make that decision? Well, yeah. I mean, besides my wife being like, you can't work weekends <laughs> anymore. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, just a good reason. Small, maybe a small. Thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was that. It was a little bit of economic security with the podcast. You know, having some money coming in from consulting and mainly consulting at that point. That was before sponsorships, so it was a little bit of that. And I mean, honestly, this is you know we're getting uh, kind of deeper, like sort of meta here. But I, this is like my life's work is to figure out how to trust other people and let people help me instead of doing everything on my own. And so it's been a theme, right? So my wife and I talk, my wife's also a therapist. So like we talk about this a lot. Um, yeah, I've talked about it in my own therapy, you know, so it was just, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a, you know, ups and downs. I'll say that, but it was part of that journey is like, this is what you got to do to, to grow is let somebody take this over and help you, you know? So it's just kind of like in, it's just been in my head, you know, for a number of years and everything sort of came together and, and I found someone I trusted, right. Who came well recommended from another podcast friend. So that, that always helps too. Yeah. Oh, I forgot my question. So uh, how, how Dr. J made the decision to actually let somebody else do it. 
So whilst you're thinking about it, Sam, I like I like to see Dr. J. I'm sorry that puts you a bit on the spot. That uh, psychologists are actually normal people, but are also um, struggling with some stuff in life. I was thinking like, okay, they have sold everything on their end, um, but it's interesting to see that uh, even in the business world, maybe it's because it's the business world, right? Um, sometimes you're also like, yeah, it took me some time to get there. But that's also what probably makes you. We are completely meta here and completely of the of the podcast. But uh, very, very interesting to hear. And uh, I guess that reflects again all that authenticity that you can feel in the podcast that you run, the different businesses and the different adventures. Um, so super, super interesting. Mm. I remember back question. Yes, I did. Uh, I was there. So I'd like to try a, a bit of a section here uh, with you, Dr. J. It's the first time we're doing this. Can you tell us the stories about how you found your sponsors? Yeah, I think that'd be really interesting for people just generally, because I think you can get sponsors from so many different ways. Uh, some come to you, some are happenstance, some's a family friend. So like, tell us about your sponsors and kind of how you found them. Yes. So my podcast at that point was three to six months old, probably about three to four months. And I was very ambitious. Um, I reached out to uh, one of the uh, medical records providers, software providers in our uh, industry that I'd worked with for a few years and said, hey, are you interested in sponsoring my podcast? And I remember that, I mean, looking back, like this is the most cringe thing you could ever do. But I, you know, they wrote back and they were like, oh, this sounds interesting. You know, what do your downloads look like? And I was so excited to email them back and say, I got 50 downloads last week. And, you know, this, I mean, bless this man who responded to me and was like very gracious and said, you know, it sounds like you're off to a great start. Uh, let's um, circle back in a few months and see where things are at. You know, I, so anyway, so that's how I did not get a sponsor. So did you get them eventually? Did you go back to them in the future? Yes, they are a sponsor Amazing. Now. Amazing. That's a great yes. story. Yes. That's cool. So my very first sponsor, though, the, the story was... Um, I think of it like low hanging fruit, right? So this was a, a test publishing company. So first of all, again, benefit of a niche, you know, we administer these tests as part of our work, right? And there are three to four major test publishers that sell us the materials to do this. So I knew this was exactly their target audience. I'd worked with them in the past and I just approached them and I said, Hey, I have not done this before, but I'm considering taking on a podcast sponsor. What do you think? And just left it open. And again, they graciously responded and said, we're interested in talking about that. What would that look like? And I said, okay, now I got to figure out what this looks like. Um, so I did a bunch of research on like, how do you even, you know, price like a rate sheet and you know, what does that look like? And honestly, it was kind of winging it and sent them some numbers and they were they were into it so that was you know that was my first sponsor and i've been fortunate that they've stuck with me for the past three or four years now and it's worked out really well but i think just again being in a niche and being able to say this is exactly your target audience helped a lot and continuing to you know hopefully do good content and and work closely with them so give them some flexibility so with those sponsors or with all your sponsors across the board um because it's a bit of a, a bit of a consensus, but it's a quite a common thing that people end up doing. Do you guarantee any results in terms of conversions? Is it just brand awareness? Is it a specific like call to action? Like what's your, how do you deal with sponsors like that on podcasts? Yeah, yeah. So the rate sheet, it guarantees a certain number of downloads per quarter is the way that I, is the way that I structure it. So I guess you call that impressions or uh, yeah, I call it downloads, but yeah, exposure essentially. And I, of course, just ask that they provide me with a unique link so that they can track the conversions. And um, that's that's how I structure it. And, and those conversions, are they, are they tracked? Are they part of the deal? Or is it just like you get the downloads on the episode, if you get conversions, great, we'll try our best, but that's not what we're uh, guaranteeing here. 
Yeah, it's the latter. So I don't guarantee conversions. I just yeah. guarantee the downloads and the impressions and it's it's on the sponsor to, uh, I suppose, shoulder that responsibility of the conversion and nice. where they take people with their landing page and and so forth. Now, again, like my sponsors though, are like very dialed into my audience. You know, they're, I'm not I, like, I'm not sponsored by, um, Casper mattresses. Right. So these are, uh, or what uh, athletic greens or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, these are test like testing specific mental health specific sponsors. So the hope is that the conversion rate is relatively high. Super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, like I said, I mean, yeah, just try to give them some flexibility and, you know, stay in close touch about how the scripts are working and if they want to tweak anything and, and so forth. Amazing. Dr. J, thank you so much for being on. Do you have anything else you'd like to say to budding podcasters in the B2B world or, or anything else or anything else about your story that you want to share? I can think of a couple things. I don't know if it'll be relevant, but y'all probably run into this idea. I mean, I think the, you know, the average number of podcasts that people publish is like 25 or something. So it takes a lot more than that to be successful. If you, if you gauge success as monetizing it, right. So you just, just like stick with it and don't, don't give up. That's probably the biggest thing. But the other game changer for me, again, if you're trying to monetize it and kind of tie it to a, you know, a, a service or a whatever, you know, a, a, a something you're trying to sell is that I don't know if you call it recycling or just the relationship between, you know, the Facebook group, which, you know, built my email list because I gathered emails for people to join the Facebook group. And then that drives podcast content because I see what people are talking about in the Facebook group. And then I turn those into episodes and then that drives consulting clients, which tells me what people are struggling with in the industry, which drives podcast content because I'm answering those questions. It's just that like trifecta of, you know, the email list with the consulting, with the podcast content, with the audience, it's all just like cycling around together. And I don't know if that applies to, to other industries, but if there's a way to, to structure it that way, it's, it's really turned into the flywheel, you know, that kind of keeps everything moving. So. It's been super helpful. I mean, so you're not the first successful podcast host that said that to us. Actually, we had in the past Paul Barnhurst, who's really, really big in the FP&A financial modeling space, um, and he's also done the same thing where he's drawn a synergy between his podcast and LinkedIn. And he's like, the two just mm. go hand in hand. He's like, I I post my LinkedIn content, um, I repurpose my podcast onto there and I get input from the LinkedIn. I put it on, on the podcast and it's a synergy of the two together and doing a podcast just by itself is very, very difficult. You really, but combining it with a platform and it's interesting. You just mentioned Facebook group. Are you really dialed in on one and the, and the mailing list or do you like, is that, is that how you operate it? Yeah, I I'm all in on Facebook. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. I just do Facebook. And like I said, that drives the email list. So those two are the only marketing quote unquote that I'm really doing. And so like we always advocate, you should be on all the platforms in terms of repurposing content, but in terms of the cycle and really being like, this is driving a large, like the 80, 20 of everything is definitely like the way to go because you understand the algorithm, you understand how to build a Facebook community, which is a skill in itself that you've probably developed over time. How do you actually get sure. people to engage in that Facebook community as well? So it's actually impactful and you get the content that you want. Um, it's definitely there. Now, I mean, you can always, you might go viral on YouTube shorts or you might go viral on TikTok. So it's probably still worth like publishing there some short form content, but really being dialed in on one, I think is, is really, really important. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it's helped. and. It's just easier for my brain too. I can only do one or two things well. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. Dr. J, thank you so much. It was absolutely great. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks. This is a lot of fun. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you for listening to the B2B Podcast Stories. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please don't forget to hit subscribe and check us out at jhamarketing.com. Have a great day.